folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actress Rosamund Pike. Early on, the stage was set for Rosamund Pike to pursue a career in the performing arts. Born to two opera singers, Rosamund had a front row seat to familial emoting. She tried her hand at both music and acting, but a bout of stage fright while playing the cello forced Rosamund to recognize that she didn't really want to play herself on stage. She was much more interested in playing other people, where her imagination was free to roam and explore. As she says, acting was like diving to a place where you actually felt alive, where things felt real. Soon after finishing college, Rosamund got her first break as a Bond girl, opposite Pierce Brosnan in 2002's Die Another Day. But playing Miranda Frost, the epitome of icy English blondness, in your breakout role, has its drawbacks. For years, Rosamund was cast in similarly cold and confident roles, and she longed for the opportunity to do more. Enter director David Fincher, who saw something unique in Rosamund. He offered the role of Amy Dunn in Gone Girl, and her breathtaking performance earned her a slew of awards and new opportunities to evolve as an artist in films like A United Kingdom, Hostels, and now her latest film, A Private War, in which she plays slain London Sunday Times journalist Marie Colvin. Her deep dive into Marie's life led to an intensity that was as fulfilling as it was terrifying. She explains, You were trying to trick your brain into getting to a place where you were out of control. And that's a scary place. But Rosamond's waited her entire life for the opportunity to disappear into somebody else. And in a private war, she does just that. Rosamond joins off camera to talk about her fascination with human emotion, the elaborate plan she concocted to be able to meet with David Fincher, and about her intimate knowledge of bone saws. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Rosamund. Hi, Sam. Thank you for doing this. You are welcome. You know what? I saw, uh, I saw A Private War um, just the other day, and this film blew me away. And I think this film lives up to the experience of what it is to be a journalist, like the caustic wit and the, the you know, sort of laissez-faire attitude towards certain grooming habits. <laughs> Things like that, you know what I mean? Sure. And I was curious if you hung around a lot of journalists um, in the lead-up to doing this film. Well, actually, one of the, one of the, there's this amazing journalists bar in London called the Frontline Club, which is where a lot of the war correspondents hang out. And um, when I first met Paul Conroy, who was the photographer who was with Marie Colvin when, when, when she died, and I met Paul, and it was this wonderful evening. You know, it was it was drinking whiskey it was sitting at a round table it was sharing stories it was it was him giving me the kind of marie that he knew you know including there was footage he had his laptop there he showed me he showed me a video of the first night that they'd ever met and she just does this kind of riff on the fact that she walked into this um, visa office where, you know, all the foreign correspondents were dutifully waiting in line to get this visa to cross the border into into Iraq. And she just couldn't believe that everyone was just following protocol like that. And she was like, what has happened to my generation of war correspondents? What are they doing? It's like, you know, she was like, my God, don't drink the tea. I mean, when you're, when you're in those situations, are you just a sponge or are you... Um are you just trying to live it? Or are you, do you have your sort of, you know, uh, student hat on at those times? Well, I had a read-through of another film the next morning, and I was like, oh, I'm so torn. You know, what do I do? Do I go home and get a good night's sleep? You know, so I'm ready and fresh for this job because I'm meeting everyone for the first time, but then maybe I'm never going to meet Paul again. Maybe this is my one chance to kind of, 
you know, have a few whiskeys with him and right. and talk like this. You know, maybe I'm never going to get to see this footage again. And 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 I I, I stayed. Would you? <laughs> and I was like, come on, I'm going to play Marie Colvin by the end of the year. You know, this is this is the only way. This, yeah. this is what to do. And you are soaking it up because you know the whole process is is you don't know if you're going to get the trust with that person. You don't know if you're going to meet them again. You know, this could be your only opportunity. I think that's what she felt at all times. You know, so you extract the most. You you know, you seize every moment. And as I'm always reminding myself, you know, you don't look back on your life and remember the nights that you got a lot of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good point. And, and that's going to be my excuse the next time I don't get a lot of sleep. Uh, you know, but I think Marie Colvin was a special brand of, of human being because she did seem to seize the moment more than most people. And I wonder, when you're playing a real person, do you start with trying to figure out how you're like her? I think, I, I, I think there were things that I related to very strongly. There was a funny detail about when she first got married, all her wedding presents, the gifts, were still wrapped up in their wrapping paper in the cupboard under her stairs. And there was something about that. I, I sort of saw the whole woman in that detail because I thought, OK, this is A, not being quite able to ever get round to real life and the kind of practicalities, even though it's, you know, it's a gift and it's something lovely, but it's also like maybe you can't see that you deserve that sort of domesticity or, or there's a there's a sort of security and safety and the kind of badge of a healthy relationship that, that somehow she felt she could never quite own. That's how I interpreted it anyway. Could you relate um, to that? I think so. I think I'm not very good at, you know, all the kind of practicalities of life. Um, you know, certainly she, she struggled to kind of keep her receipts in order and, you know, keep track of her uh, paperwork, and I am completely like that. Uh, but, but then the sort of ferocity with which she commits to something, I, I, I think I have... I have a, a sort of all-or-nothing approach. Yeah. I think I'm sometimes slow to commit. You know, I'm not always the, um, you know, most immediate uh, uh, to make a decision or to, or to become close friends with someone. But once you've once you've got me, you've got all of me. There's nothing I'm holding back. So that's sort of two details in which I, I am similar to her. But but for me, this film was a real exercise in getting myself the hell out of the way. Uh, we had Matthew Heineman, who was a documentary maker like yourself, and he, you know, his his job is to, you know, spend the time, gain the trust, as you know, of 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 people, follow them, observe them, find a level of intimacy, give us the privilege of a, a point as an observer where you almost feel, you know, that that maybe you shouldn't be in the room at a certain moment. You know, there was never another way. I didn't think, okay, this is going to be a version of Marie sort of transmitted through me. I, I really wanted to get myself out of the picture and, and embody her. I don't know, I sort of embarked on it with this idea that I wanted to sort of shed my, myself and my thoughts and, um, and deliver her to, to a documentary maker. I'm sure it was the fact that probably at my heart, I thought, well, he'd rather be making a documentary. That's an interesting point because I think, especially uh, given this sense, or considering the fact that Matthew Heineman, this is his first narrative, yeah. correct? So, you know, I think the big difference is a narrative filmmaker creates a world and a documentary filmmaker captures a world. And, yes. and yeah. it's a big distinction when it comes to how you want to collect the story. Nice image. <laughs> Was there any worry that he would be able to tell when you were acting versus when you were f feeling it? Well, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think that's always my touchstone. I'm, I'm sort of unable 
sort of pathologically unable to pretend um, emotion when I'm on screen. I, I find it, it, I admire people who can do it and I can get very, um, you know, the, the, the deep fear, of course, is, is, is you're asking everything to collide in a moment to make, to make a moment real. And the fear is always that it won't happen in the it moment. It won't show up. And it won't show up. But you can't, I don't, I have no trick to recruit it. I have no trick to pretend it. So, you know, there, there are scenes in this film where, um, you know, perhaps right before the take that's actually in the film, I've, I've gone to Matt and said, I can't find it. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like a fraud. I, I don't know really? who I am. Yeah, yeah. And I think particularly, as you say, because, um, because he's used to observing you know, real moments. And you think, what is the place of performance in a film like this where I must say that, you know, he's he is in part creating worlds and in part capturing worlds. And the blend is extraordinary because the people who populate our movie are, are Syrian, Syrian refugees for whom this is their very, very recent lived memory. And... Um, and and there was a scene that we do in a clinic where we we uh, makeshift clinic you know they they had no hospitals very few medical supplies marie did a famous broadcast uh, which went out with anderson cooper at C on cnn and she showed this footage of this young baby dying of um a gunshot wound and it was very shocking and upsetting but we recreated that footage and the man um who who was playing the father was a syrian man from homs who had had his nephew shot off his shoulders um, at a protest rally, and that child had 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 bled to death, and and he saw our baby, our young child, on the bed, and he'd come in as the father, and then the as the doctor, um, you know, the, the the doctor actor said, you know, there's nothing we can do. This this man just just this grief welled up in this man, and and it was um, it was. The whole atmosphere was was electric. It was so painful because this was, you know, and Matt's experience at that he can hold it. But it was, you thought, where, where, how do I, how do I occupy the same room as this level of 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 felt lived grief? There is no place for pretense in a room where that is happening. Right. You know, and I thought, you know, who who am I here? I. I I don't know whether I have a right to be in this room with this. Even making the film, you felt that Yes, way. yes. You know, I'm, I'm here witnessing this because this is what Marie would have done, but I'm not Marie. And yet, so where, where, where do I put these feelings? And, um, and Matt said to me, you know, you're just experiencing what documentary makers experience all the time, which is that your human instinct is to walk away and give someone space, and yet your obligation as a as a filmmaker is to is to keep watching keep listening keep the camera rolling and i thought i can't fake any feeling in this movie you know i have to you know and 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 because i sort of got the i felt i sort of got out of the way of it and i felt total trust in matt and in bob richardson the cameraman i i um i just kind of let it all i just let let stuff happen and and trusted that that it might be right that it would be right tell me about that because it would seem like trust would be a huge factor in getting up and going to work each day and feeling like you know what movie you're in like you would just have to go these are the people that i've yes put my trust into their hands and i, and I guess i was curious when when you give over to that if you discover 
that's, that something happens on a different level. It's not a, 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 a giving over one time. It's a constant tussle, I find. It's not a... It's a trust that has to be re-won again and again, I think. You know, I, I think it's interesting that you say there's a lot of talk about trust in our business, and I think this movie's really shown me what it means is because, you know, Matt looks really deep. He's very penetrating in his gaze, which is maybe something characteristic of documentary makers, is that they are looking, you know, to occupy a place of... of intimacy with their subjects that's uncomfortable. There's a way he gets inside Marie's head in this film, and, and sometimes there are sort of snapshot images from other parts of her life, and you don't quite know where they're from. There are, there are moments of trauma. There's a scene which comes as a sort of flashes, and it, and it seems to be her in the middle of a panic attack yes. in her house in London. And uh, a, a panic attack is uh, per se where it's not something I've experienced. You know, and this is Marie unhinged, alone, in her darkest place um this is the woman you know who lived so brightly as you said who was incredibly funny you know life and soul of the party and the flip side is like when it all goes quiet and um and you know it was vodka it was cigarettes it was the curtains were drawn it was it was matt said okay you know we're gonna go into a, into her room this is the space she he said you do whatever you want and he sort of locks the cameras off and and you don't know what the hell is going to come out you know, this is not a thing that's going to take a couple of minutes. This is not scripted. This is this has got to be in you. And then, so are you, you able know, to prepare you can, for that, or do you no, want to prepare for that? No, because you don't. I almost didn't know it was coming. I, 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 you know, you. He kept sort of. He would often spring things on me. I, so the scene might not necessarily be written like that. But he said, you know, this is the thing where we need to get inside Marie's nightmare place, and um, and. You'd feel this sort of dread. You'd think, oh, my God, I can't... You know, we've got to go there? <laughs> really? Now? And he'd be like, yep, that's where we're going. This is where we're going. And he said, we've got, you know, you got all the time, but this is where we're going. And so that's what I mean about having to rewin the trust because, you know, you know you're going to make yourself vulnerable. And if you're in the right place, you don't know what the hell is going to come out. And what you know? is the fear there? Well, the fear is of total exposure. The fear is of the fear is the fear is of total exposure. Is is you don't know you are trying to trick your brain into getting to a place where you are out of control, right? And that is that is a scary place because you don't know how your body. You don't know if a roar is going to come out. You don't know whether you know you're going to you know you don't know if you're going to harm yourself. It's an unusual way of working, and it's not that I sort of am even craving a kind of that level of intensity. It's just that, you know, I think as an actor, you want to fulfill a director's vision. You want to do justice by your character. And this person, because she lived and she was precious to people and she lived very recently, I felt an extra obligation or, or, or duty to, to, to be her and be fearless, I suppose. Or maybe not fearless, be courageous, because I think I had fear, as she did. But you, it's pushing through the fear. You know, when I had to do it, I had to be, you know, there was a scene of her intense vulnerability when, um, when she, uh, you know, reveals the eye. This yeah. is a woman who's, who's worn an eye patch and knows that an eye patch gives her part of her swagger. It gives, you know, it, it's, 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 a, it's a good piece of, character and armor and and um you know she knew it was working for her but in our film we have a moment where she she reveals it to us to the camera and 
um, to her lover at the time. And, you know, Matt really wanted this to be about Marie, you know, being truly vulnerable in front of someone and being being naked. And, and, and you know, I have never done nudity on screen before. I, I have had no... Um, I'm very body shy and, you know, I remember him saying, you know, we have to... And I knew it was coming, we talked about it before, and then the day happened and I was in tears. I couldn't... I was so shy, so painfully shy. And I and Stanley came in because Stanley's Tucci's in that scene. And, right. He, and he plays, said, "How are you?" He plays, he plays her, her lover at that time, and and it's revealed that he's actually in the bath. And then there's this very tender moment, and it's not even sexual. It's really about him, about pure acceptance of her, sort of accepting herself at that point of her life, right? As an older woman, and 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 Stanley just, you know, just kisses the the broken eye, and it's a very tender moment. But you know, me, Rosamond was felt feeling very shy and vulnerable. <laughs> but, but, but. I, I imagine that's really hard. I remember the moment of that in the screening of, of just thinking, like, I am not a, I'm not watching a narrative film at all. Like, I'm not supposed to be in this bathroom with these people. <laughs> you realize this woman has given her life over to her passion, and, and there's a cost to that. And I wonder if that came up for you in doing this, in having to look at your own life and how you spend your time and, and what the cost is of diving that far into what you love and the price that, she, that Marie paid for it and the price that anyone who loves something very much and feels, feels a, a, a commitment to do it, how, how their life is, can be a mess. Yeah, it, well, we've been talking quite personally and in a way that is quite, you know, it's quite uncommon to to really delve, and, it's, and it, it's one aspect of the job. And I don't know, you know, this film hasn't come out yet. I don't even know if it, it's a novel way of working that I am still processing, as you can see. You know, is this the right way? I don't think there is a right way or wrong way necessarily, but, but boy, did, um, did, did, did sort of Matt, you know, get, get me to feel things. Or, or we, we tricked my brain into, you know, my, obviously I know... I'm not Marie Colvin, but my body, I don't know. I don't know what my body uh, thinks. You know, there's a, there, there's a sort of physiological level in which sometimes I think your body doesn't know you're pretending. You know, I really tell don't. Me, tell me about that, because I, I was also I was struck by your work in hostels, and I feel like, I feel like that was a similar thing where, where the trauma you were playing is so great and, and the way you describe your work is so... You have to go someplace pretty uncomfortable and dark to get there. And, and I do wonder about that. Of <laughs> Who does that for a job? I mean, right. you know, you do. And you don't want, you know, nor do we want to think, gosh, you know, you're, you're some sort of intensity junkie. I'm, I'm not. I'm longing for the light. <laughs> you know, I really am. Well, you're picking the wrong and projects. I'm, I know. <laughs> I know, you know, and, and, and I think it's I that. I think there's a lot of the animated films you could lend your <laughs> voice to. <laughs> I'm doing a bit of that. I'm also playing Moomin Mama in the... Do you know the Moomins? I don't, but... <laughs> okay, the Moomins are a... a do they lose their whole family Iceland. when they're murdered by no, Native the, Americans? they do not lose their family. No, Moomin Mama is sort of... You, know, at the, you, know, you don't know the Moomins. They're I these don't. wonderful hippo-like creatures who, who are very sort of cosy and have very domestic concerns. So I have, I have outlets. Um, but I think, you know, I think originally what I was so drawn to in Marie is, you know, the way this woman burnt so brightly... 
And of course, that's what you're drawn to. And yet when you delve and explore, you have to see where the shadow lies, you know, where the flip side is. And that was what was, you know, it's the pitch of intensity, isn't it? It's the... And then while you're while you're absorbed in her, your your life is also living at that pitch of intensity. And, and hostiles too. It was a, an exercise. I've I've been trying to, I suppose, explore things more physically. Yeah. You know, I've never been a particularly athletic person. I've never been someone who was schooled or brought up to play sport. And in fact, I sort of, you know, my persona was always of the person who's quite bad at physical things. You know, that was kind of I found a kind of clownish right. persona. And, and I realise as an adult that I'm not as bad as I sort of had, had kind of, you know, and you play a role and long enough you believe that's who you are. And then I've, 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 I've realised that I'm not as physically uncoordinated as, I, as I'd always sort of claimed. Um, so I've been enjoying rediscovering... That's so interesting. <laughs> the physical. Well, uh, tell me about that a little bit because one of the things that struck me about your upbringing is that you're an only child. And, sure. and I mostly grew Weirdo. up in a neighbourhood with a bunch of... <laughs> A bunch of people who had siblings. Right, and there was yeah. only one kid on the block who was, was an only child, and he was different. Right. And, and it wasn't that we didn't like him or anything. We liked him just fine. And, but when he, you went to play at his house, it was different. And, I, you know, reading about you and your upbringing a little bit, I thought, like, like, like your parents were opera singers, mm-hmm. right? So first off, like, I got the sense that you were carted around with them while they while they did their thing up to a certain point, and then they dropped you off at boarding school. Is that sure. is that sort of the? Uh, you know, as an only child, you you become you, you sort of feel your place in the family very strongly. Right. You know, we never had very much money. My parents still live in the student flat they rented when they were at the Royal College of Music together. You know, really? opera singing is a tough life, and and yeah, you know, you, it's full all of your glasses kind of, are breaking and. <laughs> Can't keep any, any. It's very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, um, and I was often backstage, and it was incredibly exciting. And then I got a scholarship to go to this boarding school, which sort of just seemed like the right thing to do as part of my kind of, I don't know, my my contribution to the family. It was, it was, it was. It meant it was it was cheap because I got seventy five percent off the fees, and it was a kind of, you know, it seemed like the right thing to do. And my mum said, you know, you'll be the. You know, you might be the misfit. You know, we're going to be people there who've got a lot more money than us. And oh, really? You know, so you it, will be. You won't have the clothes that they have, and you won't have the things, and just be prepared. And you know, and um, and so I went there, and I was a bit of a fish out of water. But then I've always felt a little bit like you know, like your friend on the block. You know, you, you are the out, you feel a bit of the outsider or the alien or yeah. Something. Yeah, I'm curious. But then about you that. are. You know, I was sort of different. I felt different. My parents didn't do what their parents did. You know, I remember when they came, my mum came to perform one time in, in, in Bristol, where my school was, which is a city in England, for those people who don't know. Yes. Um, you know, I, I was backstage, and in the interval, I was kind of wondering, I realised that, like, my mum was the entertainment for my friend's parents, and that was sort of, I thought that was pretty cool, really. Right. But, um, but I was always craving adult, uh, bigger feelings, something bigger. I was always kind of craving... Feeling, I suppose. I was chasing a feeling all the time. I was. I had a teacher, a drama teacher, who was one of, you know, a few teachers who inspired me, but she was someone who... She had been an actress. I don't know in what capacity, but she gave me an insight into plays that was sort of probably too advanced for the age I was, but it was like this kind of window into, you know, adult emotion, complicated feelings... And, and and that was a gift for me. It was something. It was a world I understood, and I that was where I departed in my mind into some you know future life where 
things were complicated and fascinating and intricate and and it was kind of it, it, it I was always away in my imagination with that and you know I functioned and I went through my lessons and all the rest of it but it wasn't really where my heart was so did you know at an early age that yeah. that's what you wanted to yes, do yes and without without question oh without question yeah because it was like diving into somewhere where you actually felt alive <laughs> it was like you know this is this is where this is where sort of this is where you know, this is where things feel, paradoxically, where things feel real. And were you, you know, naturally a performer, like, extrovert? No, even now. It's okay sitting here in the room. If I think about anyone watching this, I'd get very nervous, but I'm focusing on just, you know, you and me chatting. But sometimes people ask me to do a speech at, um, at uh, you know, they think I'd be quite good at it. And I'm, I hate it. It fills me with such painful fear. Well, there's your panic attack research. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. It makes me wonder what it is you love most about what you do, because I think people do get into this for very different reasons. I, I guess I it's the know. ability I, to live somebody else's it's life. It's finding truth. I feel that in, as, as humans, we're searching for things that feel meaningful all the time, and I think, you know, I get to live other people's lives, and, and you know, if you're lucky... You get to convey something meaningful and you get to live intensely. You know, maybe it's trying to do more with your time, you know, fit yeah. more into your life, fit more, fit many lives into your life. Um, there's a sense of, I, I, it's a deep loss of self that is, but I don't think it's like I, I'm running away from myself. I think it's just that, you know, I find other people more interesting. I was thinking, I've been waiting for this opportunity, I think, my whole, all my acting life. You know, I think I've, you know, often watched performances and like, oh, there I am. Oh, dear. You know, I see myself. Uh, you know, and, and been waiting for the opportunity, which I realise only in speaking to you actually right now, is that's what I've been looking for, is, the, is, is because what really interests me is what we've just talked about, is intense meditation on somebody else and, and disappearing into that person. Um, but, you know, in, in sort of other roles I've done, that's not been possible or it's not been what's required. And, and sometimes you realise you've been cast, actually, because they want you, <laughs> which is not the idea for me at all. You know, I want to be a conduit. I want to be a channel. You, you want to have the mystery, don't you? I mean, the mystery is... And that's why I, I don't really like to question it too much. You know, there was obviously some intensity, very uh, a great deal of intensity playing Marie Colvin. Um, people asked me, you know, did you decompress at the end of a day? Did you sort of, you know, do anything to... And in truth, is the answer is no, is because if something I felt came in and something came through me, I don't want to interfere with it because there's a terrible fear that it won't happen again. It's arrogant to think you can put that skin on every morning and then take it off at night, right? Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that, but I, I have got a tremendous fear of, 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 of losing the mystery or, or somehow, I don't know, because, because it's intangible. It's, it's not something that you... It's not something that you do or, or plan. <laughs> Are you hard on yourself? Oh, uh, yeah, very much so, yeah, very much so. But I do, I do watch, I do watch myself because I'm always saying, do I believe it? Do I believe it? It's the same thing as I sat as a little girl sitting in rehearsal rooms, you know, with my parents. I would be asking, do I believe that? No, why don't I believe that? 
I don't believe that at all. Why don't I believe that? Oh, I do believe that. I was reading about sort of your history going through the Bond girl time, because that was sort of your first big break. Yes. And I think it probably doesn't occur to a lot of people what a transformative experience that is to, to go in with no perceptions about your career and then come out and have everyone have an opinion. I'd also never seen a Bond film. <laughs> you know, I was like, I told you I was innocent. I was naive, really. Right. Um, but I think they think you've been hired to be you in that instance. And in fact, that wasn't me at all. Right. Miranda Frost was this terribly icy, controlled, you know, hyper-confident, rather so, sort of soulless person. And... and you know, you're 21, and that is the brush with which you're painted. It's pretty horrific. But, you know, I knew what was required. Her name was Miranda Frost. She was the sort of, she had a function to fulfill as the epitome of icy English blondness. I knew how to do that. Didn't mean that was what I was, you know. And yet you're 21, and suddenly you're feeling insecure, you know, shy, and, and, and nobody sees it. And then you say, I'm feeling shy. And they're like, oh, but you look so confident. Yeah, I know I look confident, but I'm not, you know, is what was going on in my head. You know, I'd never been in a, I'd hardly ever taken a taxi. I remember getting, my, getting to fear that I'd just got the job. And, um, and I was like just about to go and meet my friends on the tube. And I was like, I can take a taxi now. And that was a huge thing. Really? London cab, yeah. Yeah, like watching the meter go and thinking I can afford that now. But did you find out that after that experience that the roles you were offered or the thing, the way people saw you, like, it, it sort of put you in a place for a while? And Yeah, I never got to be young, really. I never got to be, like, um, I mean, Pride and Prejudice, yes, that was the one thing. But, but I never got to be, you know, I remember doing an education with Carrie Mulligan, who right. was a friend of mine. And, um, and you were the sophisticate in that film. Yes, and I was like, and Carrie, it was such a wonderful role, and Carrie was so brilliant in it. But I thought, but I wonder what it would have been one. like for me if I'd had the chance to be, to be young in a movie, like had a, had a movie where I got to experience, you know, all those big things for the first time, like, like that. But, but, you know, Miranda Frost sort of put me forward 10 years almost. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because she, she came across probably seeming, you know, like she was nearer 30 than, uh, than 20. Right, and so then that sort of becomes the brief on you when you get offered other things. And yeah, then I did a movie, Fracture, with Ryan Gosling, where I played a lawyer, and, you know, um, I, didn't, I didn't feel like myself in that. I didn't, I, that, I didn't feel that that was really what I had to offer in terms of, I don't know, I kept being, it was, again, another cool, sophisticated, confident um, sort of, like the icy character. I think that one of the things that has to be so frustrated about trying to start a career in your 20s, and even if you get some big breaks, I, I would think that getting the opportunity to show what you can do and, and to experience the thing you love to its fullest and finding roles that give you an opportunity to do that, I think that would be, that would be really frustrating. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I watch my parents go through that too, is, you know, you're... You have this gift, you have this tool, but unless someone hires you to do it, you, you, there's no outlet for that that, 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 you know, incredible talent that they had. You know, you need, you know, you need to be hired to do it and, and, and to, to, to show it. But, um, you know, I mean, goodness, that, it's, it's a high, you know, it's a, 
you're lucky basically as an actor to be working. I mean, let's not forget that. You know, this is your career choice and you, you want to make a living at what you do, right? Um, but I think I always felt that I had more to offer on a sort of emotional scale than I ever felt I was, you know, there to be the glamorous, sophisticated one. But I here's the I question sort of, is, when you feel that, but you don't get the opportunity to test mm, that theory, sure. does it mess with your self-confidence? Well, I did it identity? on stage. I was always, always alongside my film career. I had a very, um, very rich uh, theatre career during my 20s. Right. So I had some amazing roles on stage, which were, you know, which I haven't, I haven't been in the theatre for, goodness, like, you know, nearly eight years or something. Well, who has the time? You're busy getting <laughs> shot at, and, you know, becoming, but, uh, a, a, you know, I mean, look at, look at your career since, <laughs> since, I mean, even since Gone Girl, which wasn't even that many years ago. I mean, definitely when I see Hostiles, which I haven't seen for a while, but if I see those opening sequence, that opening sequence of Hostiles, my, my heart starts to race, beat faster when I see the Comanche coming. I mean, I, it, 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 and that's a, that's very odd feeling. I think you described saying something about um, living the emotional life of that character. And I, I wonder what that actually means on a day-to-day -day basis. Is there a transformation that takes place where you sort of put Rosamund aside for that, for that time of filming and you're more in that other person's life? I think you're more in the other person's life, yes. But when I jump in, I jump in totally, you know. I don't know what it is. Sounds like it's that's, your, it's that's your joy. Yeah, but then I also love, like, you know, I mean, I'm not living it all the time. I'm not working now, and I love playing ping pong and swimming, and, you know, I want to learn to ride a motorbike because, you know, my, my other half is a, You've is a big biker. And I've, I know, well, I've, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm hoping this conversation is going to end up with, is a, an <laughs> I invitation to come. And, yeah, I, I want to, no, I really do want to learn to, you know, ride a bike, and, and there are other things, and... You know, I'm trying to learn to play football because I've got two little boys and, you know, I've never even had to negotiate a ball with my feet <laughs> before. And, you know, there's a kind of, you know what I mean? There's, you, can, you can dive into this level of intensity, but then you can sort of unravel it all. And but it makes me wonder if, if, if you also dive in that way in your own life. Yeah, I'll give everything, I'll give anything a go. You know, I'll give, I'll give it all a go. I'm, I'm, you know, trying to learn to surf. And as I say, you know, trying to find this sort of lost athleticism that I might have had. If I if I hadn't styled myself as the the one who was bad at everything, um, <laughs> yeah, trying to learn to skateboard and with my kids and all the things that is not it's not the time. I realise that as you're nearly forty, it's not it's not the time to I start admire taking this. up all these I, you dangerous. Know what? I uh, I'm an advocate you do. for that. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about Gone Girl because I was just curious if you'd had sort of accepted your trajectory of the kind of roles you were getting before that role and if being considered by David Fincher was a surprise to you at that point. It was, a, I had been, you know, craving an opportunity like that. Um, and I certainly was not finding it with, with you know, if, if someone had had offered me something more complicated, it certainly wouldn't be with a director of that caliber. And, you know, I, I mean, I know that, you know, your only real shot of making a decent film is if the director is, is superlative of, of a really great film, you know, and I think a really great film is something very, very rare. And I didn't know anything about David Fincher's process. I didn't know that, you know, I assumed he was meeting everybody. I didn't know that that was not how he works and that he sort of zones in on people. And, and, and suddenly we're having this conversation. And, and I just said to him, I, I said, I, I, I realise you, you think I've got this 
character in me, don't you? And I said, and I don't know how on earth you know that. You know, he, from my work to, to date, at that point, there was nothing that could have told him that I had all of Amy's, you know, multi-layered complexity and deviousness. And it was a sort of growing dawning that this could actually become a reality as we were talking, that somehow this was maybe mine to lose rather than mine to win. That's got to that be kind of scary sort of, at the same time as exciting, yeah, right? I mean, I flew to meet him. I, I did a kind of... You know, I did this crazy thing. He was like, can, can we meet? And at that point, I just thought, I've got to say yes to everything. I've just got to kind of go with this ride in this whatever crazy form it takes. And we'd, we'd Skype many times by this point. And he was like, I'm in St. Louis. Can you meet me in St. Louis? And I said, okay. I was on a job. I mean, I was on a job. I had a 6 a.m. call time on Monday. I had, was in Glasgow in Scotland. <laughs> I was like, I just realized I'd said yes to meeting in St. Louis. I didn't even tell my agents. And you were because, like, where's St. Louis? Yeah. <laughs> And I thought, okay, I have to fly to New York and then on to St. Louis. And there was one flight that would get me in and it would get me back at 8.30 a.m. on a Monday, which was two hours after my call time. And I thought I started planning, you know, in a very probably Amy-like fashion, a kind of a, a, a sort of a plan. And I had uh, I decided I was going to be, I'd, I'd had a minor toothache a couple of weeks before on the job. And I was like, okay, that toothache is coming back in a big way. And, <laughs> you know, I'm going to have like near sort of hospitalization on the yeah. result of this tooth that we didn't catch. And, you know, and I'm going to have to get, I'm going to have to, you know, say that, um, you know, I had, I had my young son with me at that point up in, and we had a nanny. And I was like, okay, the nanny's going to have to meet my driver, you know, at 6.30 a.m. on Monday. And she's going to have to tell him that I'm in the hospital, but he cannot go to the hospital. So she has to produce an old prescription that I have, you know, tucked away that he has to go and wait outside the pharmacy for it to open. So he cannot go to the hospital to look for me. Meanwhile, you know, my husband's driving to Glasgow Airport to meet me off this flight. And we've done our research into the fact that, you know, six times out of seven in a week, that New York flight gets back to Glasgow on time. There's one flight a week where it's like three hours late. With, and anyway, I've had this mad night with, with David in, in St. Louis talking about Amy, and, um, and, I, and I did it. Did it worry you at all that he felt you were totally believable as a sociopath? Yeah. I mean, you know, that does cross one's mind. <laughs> I know, I mean, you know, but I don't know. I mean, sociopaths are very clever, very attractive people. They, are, they can assume many guises, that's you know, true. I mean, we are drawn to... Now this this conversation could take a whole other turn and everyone would be like, oh my God, is that whole conversation some sort of deep study? Is she is she just a sociopath? Yeah, no, but I mean, come on, you know, you're playing a convince you're playing a sociopath in a convincing way for a number of months. I mean, you think that doesn't fuck with your brain? I'm you're like, is this because I'm a terrible person? Can I pull this off because I'm awful? I mean you think of course Are that these crosses the questions your mind. That go through well, your mind? Of course it crosses your mind. Yes, it does. It doesn't just say I am a great actress. No, because... oh, for, for God's sake, no. That never. No, it means you're just like. I mean, that. If you do you know actors, I mean, does that ever cross anyone's mind? No, it's like, am I a terrible, terrible person? Am I, you know, am I just, you know, your job is my job is pretending or whatever it is at the end of this conversation that we decide that it is. It's a kind of pretending, and yet you're convincing yourself that it's real, and and sometimes it is totally real and lived and felt and. But, oh, God, I mean, it's very multiple layers. But, yes, boy, does that go through your head. Yeah. And, and then sometimes, I mean, I remember getting this kind of nervous energy when, especially when Amy was in control of the scene, you know, and she was being so manipulative and, and I knew I was 
doing it well. And I was like, this is so, this is such a precariously scary feeling of being convincing in this role. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. And that's aside from, you know, my research, which involved going to a butcher on La Brea and practicing with my box, uh, my box cutter. Right, for the big slash. For the big slash, yeah. I mean, hell yeah, I went down and sewed some pig carcasses and, and slashed them with deep, you know, deep intensity, not realizing that it was one of these kind of open plan, trendy new butchers. And there were people lining up for their coffees watching me, you know, slicing through these hanging really? pig carcasses. Yes, I mean... I went in with the question of could I come and I need to see how, you know, a knife passes through flesh. Could you, would you mind if... It doesn't even occur to me that people might think, OK, this woman is a total batshit crazy. I mean, I got a Dora the Explorer doll, which I, uh, from CVS, and taped her with gaffer tape. You didn't? I did, to a... To a, to a to a stake so I could sort of you know we'd rehearse that scene where Amy murders Desi yeah. you know me and Neil Patrick Harris <laughs> you know set up but Fincher that was the pièce de résistance of the film for him I mean he wanted that scene to be you know something so wildly crazy that you know it would kind of go down in history which I think it, it, yes. it did you know but it take it took tremendous precision and that was you know Fincher you know at his kind of most masterful mode you know, everything about that set, you know, literally a bloody bed, the, you know, the wall of the set would raise, the bloody bed would go out, a, a clean new bed would come in, you know, there was um, plastic sheeting over the floor, Neil and I would walk out covered in blood, there'd be a station for hand washing, then a station for body washing, then we'd go and have a full shower, and then we'd reset and start again for two days straight, this revolving door of psychotic for murder. For two days straight. Yeah, but before that, we'd rehearsed all the moves and then I thought, my God, you know, there's so much resting on this. I need to have a practice alone at home. I couldn't really recruit somebody else, so I recruited Dora the Explorer. And, um, you know, and, and I tied her to a sort of six-foot stake to kind of be the size of Neil Patrick Harris. And then I, um, you know, rehearsed out in the, in the yard of the, of the house I'd rented, which I realized afterwards is, is, is overlooked by many other properties. So what people thought I were doing, I was doing, if they happened to be, you know, on their balcony at that, that, uh, at that time and saw, you know... Me rolling around looking like I was, I mean, goodness knows. I mean, hump and then murder Dorothy's <laughs> You know, I, I, hearing this, uh, it's, it's, I mean. She's, you think I'm a psycho. I, I, I know. I, I actually you. don't. I feel like the, the greatest work gets done when you're People completely oblivious of what it might look like. <laughs> and you just gotta, you just gotta dive in and do it. But I, yeah. but you describe I all this, and I, I realize like, it to be really good at what you do, it must mess with you. I, oh look, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's clearly pretty on the on the borderline of, of crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I, I understand that. I understand that attention to craft and wanting to I went into a, slice up some pigs. I get that. I'm with you, you know, on that. I mean, yeah. even when I was making Doom, which okay, I've I've now sort of you know probably the nadir of my career. Um, <laughs> Well, that's why I had you here today. We're going to talk about Doom next. Anyway, I even that's, then that's because <laughs> even then, you know, I was playing a you know a, a scientist in outer space who has to dissect monsters, and I thought, okay, well, this is my chance. And I um I was in Prague, and I went to the Prague Medical School and and joined their human dissection class. You didn't. And I was so hungover for whatever reason on the day I had to go in there and the kind of whiff of formaldehyde that kind of greets the embalmed bodies and then and then real bodies. Yes, but my God, is it is it is it amazing to to see that and a, a privilege to see 
inside a human being. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's something very beautiful as well as you know. Obviously, if you know, you know, people might say, "Oh God, why? How could she do that?" But because there was a, my character Sam Grimm had to at one stage be do make the first incision into one of the monsters with a bone saw. I want. I asked if I could see what a bone saw actually did. So I was given my own cadaver, <laughs> who I called George. <laughs> he had a large bruise on his head. I hope from a fall, um, and and I and I and I, I um, I made the incision into his sternum. I mean, I now I'm saying this to you. I realise that it is crazy, but at the time that seemed like you couldn't the just way go get I a could. rump roast and. You I know. know, but it's I know that's what I realise. It's it's absurd, really. I don't know who the director of Doom was, but I'm sure he's now hearing this flattered. For the first time. It's you did the, the same time. kind of prep for <laughs> Doom. Doom that you did for Gone Girl, for David Fincher. Absolutely. Andre, yeah, I hope you're watching. Yeah. That's just what you get when you hire you. <laughs> yes, what, I, what they didn't get then was a, was a decent American accent, which after then I, I realized was going to be the thing I had to you know, work so hard at. Kai, you are very, sort of, very good in an American um, accent. Not then. Not then. Well, oh, oh, God, shocking. Yeah, that was terrible. It was terrible. No, I didn't see it. <laughs> it was, it was, yeah, it was not, it was not good. Maybe, maybe But that cut was a another time. I'm supposed to be the twin. Cut right? a few in less that sternums. Film, I was the twin of Carl Urban, right? That was the, that was the thing that set, that set its, you know, set the pace with Miranda Frost. Carl Urban was 10 years older than me, and I was supposed to be his twin sister. And you're like... Okay, I'm just destined to be ten years older than I am, and here I am now playing Marie Colvin, and I'm fifty-seven. Yeah. So I was, I was sitting next to Kira Knightley on the flight out to Toronto, and she was like, "My God, you're playing fifty-seven." She said, "Did you have a load of prosthetics?" I was like, "Fewer than I would have liked, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest." You're like, "That's not, a very rude question." <laughs> Fewer than, yeah. God, if being an actress isn't hard enough, it's like you, you don't have to battle your own personal demons and learn how to use bone saws and buy Dora the Explorer. I'm sure you didn't turn that receipt in, but also <laughs> people think you're expensive. older than you are. Yeah, she. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are anyway, you in therapy. But, um, <laughs> it's paid therapy. That's what I always say about acting. Is is it's kind of paid therapy, isn't it? I don't know. Is it something where, in the end, through all of this. Do you think you learn more about yourself or more about these people? Oh, God, definitely the people. Yeah, I mean, otherwise it would be a sort of huge exercise in narcissism, which probably people assume it is, really, maybe. Um, but no, definitely. No, it's all about, it's all about the, the sort of other people's lives. I'd probably may be quite a good therapist. You think so? I might be, yeah. You'd just leave the bone saw behind. <laughs> Yeah, my God, yeah. Or maybe you could put it on a rack behind you. you know? Along with my sword from, my sword from, die another day, and my sword from Wrath of the Titans. Actually, you know, there was a time when um, I, did a, I, I did win an award, actually, for Gone Girl. And, um, yes, she did. I won an award. Well, I, won an, I, I might have won a few awards, but there was one. I won the Empire Award from our British film magazine, The Empire. And I, and I wasn't there to accept it, so I made a, a sort of video speech. And, and I said, you know, when I, when I first saw... Um, I think it was uh, Fight Club, and I said to my agent, "You know, God, this is something. I mean, my I would really want to work with this director. He's he's this is sort of totally electric." And he just said, "Well, David Fincher doesn't hire Bond girls." So then I kind of went into action, and I made some very strategic choices over the next few years: Doom, Johnny English, 
Wrath of the Titans. I planted the seeds in his mind. I knew exactly the kind of taste he had. And bingo, you know, 10 years later, he calls. This was a 10-year motivating. <laughs> With all the kind of r- films that I felt would really, really, yeah, exactly. really speak to his taste. And it, you see, it worked. That must be crazy making, because like, you have no control over that. You're, you're not going to say no, and, and it's a great opportunity, but you have no idea the ramifications of that when, you, when you're young and you do that. No, it's, well, it's also like you know, the, 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 this whole thing you're asked so early on about your choices, and you're you know, in this sort of portentous way, and you're just like, are you kidding me? I'm just taking everything I'm offered, <laughs> you know. I was like, what is this choices thing? Is this just something we have to subscribe to because it like, sounds cool? I'm like, I'm just like lucky. I came from parents who were, you know, out of work many, 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 many a month on end. And do you think that that, that sort of sets your outlook so pretty, pretty permanently? Or- yes, now I think I'm, I'm recalibrating. No, now I, now I am. Now I am carving. This, the last sort of, I don't know, yeah, the last kind of five years or so is, has definitely, this, this has been my, now I'm making choices. That's how right. you can, I'll, on, I'll sort of stand up to what I've done in the last five years, yeah. Did you have anyone, any men, a mentor, anyone to guide you through that process, or were you just sort of well, like... Really, I snatched at straws, you know, because again, I, 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 there were a few pieces of really great advice. There was an actress called Sheila Gish, who I worked with on an early TV series, who I, there was this day that I had a scene um, where I didn't have any words, and she said... Oh, she said, that's the best, that's the gift. She said, because all you do is listen. And she said, that's the most free you can be. And I thought that was like a huge lesson in just one line. And I was like, okay, it's just all about listening, isn't it? I get it, I see. And it, yes, I understand. And I was like, it was like a flip, a, fli- a switch flipped. I was like, I see, it's not, it's, the talking's nothing to do with it, it's the listening. And then, um, and then... Uh, and then Judy Dench did a sort of, you know, on a, on a practical level, she said, you know, she said, oh, Rosie. She said she was going to call me Rosie. She said, Rosie, just make sure. She said, you just always go home at the end of the show. And I, and, and I took that to mean um, you just check in, you know, in all our kind of crazy life, in all the places it takes you, in all the sort of altered states that you get yourself into. At the end of the show, whether it's on stage or at the end of the day on filming, you, you just check in with home. You just mentally go home, even if it's not physically. If you can't physically go home because you're on another location, you just you just make sure you just you know ground in by. And I, that was another really key piece of advice. You know, you've just got to always nurture that thing at home. That that's that's your stability. That's your grounding force. Is is going home, and you know, often it's tempting. You know, you're riding high on adrenaline, and you know. The night could get crazy, things could, you know, you could be taken, transported, all that. And, and yes, you can let that happen, but first you go home. You know, you just check in with... And it was great. It's very... I always do it. God, I, you know, I think it's fascinating. Hearing you talk about this, it, it's a dichotomy, because on one hand, the more you talk about it, the more mysterious it becomes how you do it. And I think that the way you talk about it is, it shows what a, what a hard art it is to to lasso or to, to contain. You know what I mean? Well, I think it is, and I think that's the fear of it, and I think that's the pressure, and that's the thing of, can I do it again? And maybe I'm never going to do it, maybe I can't do it again, and maybe I have to give up. You know, you're asking feeling to come in at a specific moment that is not of your making. You never know when the scene that's been shot before is going to end and when, you know, lighting will be ready, and, and how do you 
concentrate all your energies on that moment. And that's the great sort of struggle and, and, and the constant learning process, really, is how you keep your mind um, free and, and able to adapt and, um, and sort of... And, and sort of ready to be the, the, the sponge or, or whatever it is. Or you get your bone saw out. <laughs> yeah, you just, if, if all else fails, you get the bone saw out. You come to the director, you say, look, I have a little idea about this scene. <laughs> and I've prepared. Yeah, always try and, yeah. <laughs> thank you for, thank you for <laughs> sharing the absurd and the sublime with me. Yeah, the, I, I am quite an absurd... Yes, I think the absurd and the sublime, there you go. There you go. I think it, there is no... If you lose the sight to the fact that, yes, it is absurd, but yes, is it goddamn profound sometimes, you know, it's the, that's, the be- that's the crazy beauty of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, well, you are, you are a steward of, yeah. of that philosophy, and, God, I think your work's great, and it's been lovely meeting you and talking to you. Not all of it, but let's be, let's be honest. Let's, let's end on that note. <laughs> really so Thank nice. you. Really so nice. Thank you. Hey, folks, that's our show. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, because talking to Rosamond was an incredible experience. And I think sometimes on this show, I get to see another side of an artist that hasn't been revealed yet. And in this case, I just found Rosamond all the more impressive for her humanness, for her insecurities, and for getting a peek behind the curtain into her private process. So I really enjoyed that episode. And if you loved it too, take a minute and tell your friends about Off Camera. You know, we are a television show as well as a podcast. And if you go to offcamera.com, you'll find our archive of over 165 shows in stunning high-definition black and white. And if you get our monthly subscription for only $4.99, you can watch all of those shows as many times as you want on any device. So there's no better way to take a deep dive into off-camera and get to know these iconic artists intimately. If you're loving the podcast but you haven't subscribed yet, please take a minute, go to iTunes, subscribe, and while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. Every time you do that, it allows more people to find the show. So do those things. Check us out online and tell your friends. Tell your close friends, tell your family, but also go on social media and talk about Off Camera. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. Also, if you want to send me a direct email, I am sam at offcamera.com. I want to thank everybody that works on this show. Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, Kara Johnson, Bo Galvin, and Matt Davidson, who's staring down the barrel at his first colonoscopy. So good luck with that, Matt. See you next time, off camera.